You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. On today's episode, we have gone international and our very first international architect, although he is an Aussie, welcome Jeremy Edmiston from System Architects all the way from Chelsea, Manhattan in New York City. Welcome, Jeremy. Thanks very much, Elizabeth. It's great to be here. Jeremy, I was just reminiscing about the time that I first met you and you first came on our jury in 2016 when we were at the Venice Biennale. I think it was the first and the very last international jury we had there. And since that time, I've seen you in 2018, and I think you've come and spoken for us in 2017 in Australia after one of our awards. And you've been a a fabulous support for us. And also, this is mainly stemmed from that beautiful twisted brick building in Tribeca in New York. How long has that project been going on for now? It's been going for a while. You know, how long is, you want me to reveal no, to I Australia <laughs> that our project has been in construction for over seven years, no, six years. Six years. Well, yeah. I've enjoyed it because I've been able to see nearly all the stages and hopefully when it's completed, our borders will open. So the question is, how long does it take to build a house in Manhattan? Okay. You know, right. So how long does it take a family to build a house for themselves, right? Because that's, that's, that's what it is, right? So Jeff Coons built himself a house that took him, that took him 14 years and it cost three times as much as ours. Yes. So, you know, I, I'm not breaking any records, let's say that. <laughs> I wasn't meaning to insinuate that, Jeremy. I just, uh, I, yeah, I just sort of think about being engaged with the project for so long. But that's one of the yeah. things I've learned about architects is that, I guess, from the conception stage to the completion stage. Sometimes that's, you know, 10 to 15 years, and I admire the tenacity and the enthusiasm along the way. Well, it's, it's about something that's very particular, and it's, it's not always easy to understand what that is at the beginning of the project. It takes a while. It's a, it's a conversation. Design is a conversation with many people and you hope to construct that room in an interesting way. And you hope that the conversation is fueled by curiosity because it becomes architecture when the conventional standards don't quite work, don't quite fit, mm. when something more precise is called for. That can have to do with how the building is going to be used, how space is going to be used. It can have to do with the site. It can have to do with the personalities involved in, in, in a project. It can have to do with the material. So that's what's interesting, I think, for me about architecture is that at the beginning, you don't quite know what the project is. And then all of these constraints seem to come in. And My understanding now of architects is they're very good at dealing with constraints. Fast on their feet. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) Jeremy, you are a long way from home now, but just tell us a little bit about your childhood, where you grew up. How did that influence you? I came from 
Queensland, Brisbane, and we lived in a Queenslander. You know, those wood houses, those weatherboard houses on, on stilts. Yep. And with the big verandas. And it was kind of interesting, you know, it's, they're quite dark inside, which is sort of kind of counterintuitive to the way we often see contemporary architecture now. But in a place that has so much light, the darkness is, is actually a relief in a way. So the Queenslander was, was somewhat of an influence, I think. You know, that kind of relationship to the, the house that you grow up in, that, that's always very emotional. I think, you know, the memories are foundational. So Queensland is a memory that I took with me to architecture school in Sydney. I was, I think I'm in New York because I'm a very bad Australian. I was, you know, I was, I was terrible surfing and the beach wasn't my habitat, but I, I appreciated it. I enjoyed it sort of conceptually. And at architecture school, I had some friends who were, who were surfers. They would, I guess they would surf every day before school. And they took me to the Northern beaches. We were at UTS and they drove me up to the Northern beaches. They just parked on the side of the road. We walked a, across the road and down the hill towards the beach. And there, there were these shacks that they would take me to, the surfer shacks that were just built on the side of the hill overlooking the surf out of driftwood, out of, you know, whatever was around really. And I loved that way of occupying the landscape. And they just hang out there doing what surfers do, waiting for the right set to come and then they go and go off and surf. So I think, you know, those were two really kind of interesting, almost informal spaces that had a big, I think, a big influence on me as a, as a youngster. Jeremy, why Sydney? What, what drove you to Sydney? Or My parents moved to okay. Sydney when I was 10, maybe. And then when you were going through school, towards the end of schooling, that you wanted to be an architect, how did that choice come about? Oh, it's the family business. Right. I just, my dad's an architect. His dad was a land surveyor. I, yeah, I took that route. Okay. And when you went to UTS and then you're at university and then you go on, I think, to win so many awards, the Fulbright, Harkness and the Bayera Hadley scholarships. What, what does that mean to people that, that don't really know much about those scholarships? And what did it mean to you? Well, you know, as a screw up, I failed second year at UTS. I just, I just couldn't get it. You know, I think, I think architecture is quite, it's not intuitive. It's something that one sort of learns. It takes a while to sort of appreciate or to some, obviously me, I guess there's a moment where you get it and you work very hard and you get lucky. I, I had to go to Sydney Uni to interview for the Fulbright and they were quite sort of snooty because I was from UTS and Sydney Uni had a kind of a sense about them in those days. Perhaps they don't have that so much anymore. I don't know. But this was a very dark room wood panelled. There were the folk in the room to me seemed to be extremely old. And they looked at me and they said, we don't give the Fulbright to people who have failed at college. It's like, oh, well, I guess this is going to be a quick interview then. <laughs> I think architecture is an unusual field because it's science and art. It's conceptual and practical. And, you know, it took me a while to sort of 
come to terms, figure figure it out. But after um, them saying that to you, Jeremy, you then went and won it. So how did that come about? Who the hell knows? Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> For the Hartness interview, I had to fly to Melbourne. And that was terrifying because these folk were, you know, it was published who was on the interview uh, on, the, on the selection committee. And you could read their resumes before you went into the room. And they were an intimidating crowd on paper. Sininian Stevens was the chairperson. And he was, at the time, the ambassador to the UN for the environment. And we were talking about the environment, you know, where my project, you know, was about, was about the environment. I had this idea about how high-rise buildings could generate energy and so forth. And as an architect, I think, you're often in the position of trying to talk about architecture in a way that is understandable. So I said to everyone, well, how, how long have you been sitting here interviewing? You know, it's been all day, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, so can you tell me what the weather's like outside? And uh, that was like silence and they were looking at each other. And it's like, no, we've been in here, it's been air conditioned. Don't you think it would be good if you knew what the weather was like? You're working in this environment, you're together, you're having interesting discussions, and you're completely removed from what it's like outside. Yeah. And that barrier was essentially what my project was about coming to America and studying how buildings could do that better. It was, it was like that surf shack, you know, it was so great to be sitting on the side of the hill under shade and feeling the wind in your hair, smelling the, the salt, you know, air, being part of the environment in that way, but the shelter providing some kind of comfort, mm. some kind of sort of relief, some tempering of, of the environment. Of course, you know, I got to New York and realized you need heating. <laughs> or else you die basically <laughs> the idea of opening a window you know isn't always you know what, what's i think it's hard for. to always extra, understand the extremes of temperature overseas because here we're pretty it's pretty mild yeah it's been nice to live through four seasons mm. there are four very distinct seasons in new york that's kind of a great thing for for architecture to see the colours and the, the smells and the temperatures and the humidity change that much through the year. I think that's exciting. And I think that's, you know, part of why we design to make that sort of part of the environment. With winning those scholarships, what did that mean for you? You know, you've already said, I think, very unflatteringly, you're, you're a screw-up. But what did, what did it mean for what you wanted to do next? Well, it meant I could come to America. And, you know, a lot of my friends would, they would go to the UK because there was a sort of the, the, the cost of education and the educational system was a little bit more compatible with what we knew. In those days, there weren't very many people who would come to the States to study. And at the time in New York, Bernard Sumi was, was, had become Dean at Columbia and it was uh, a school that was promoting a great deal of experimentation in architecture. It was a very sort of exciting time at that school at that moment. And, uh, you know, I was able to come and participate in that. And I, th I think there's two things to be said about that. One is that as a designer, confidence is something that's very important because you're, you need that tenacity. 
if you will, to survive six years on a construction site. Um, but it, it takes tremendous, I think, confidence to put something out into the world that is new, that doesn't exist. And to be able to, you know, be a designer in the room with the folk who were at Columbia at that time and with the professors and the teachers and the library, the Avery Library, the history of the place. That's tremendous for a designer's confidence, I think. Mm. And I think the second thing is, which is really banal, is that I was able to graduate Columbia without debt. So there was a possibility of going into practice. Mm. I didn't want to at the time. I wanted to, I wanted to be a corporate architect. But you know, when I graduated, uh, there was there was no work anywhere in the world except Berlin. So I I went to go to Berlin <laughs> and Rotterdam. But at that point, Belinda had uh, a job at a magazine, and uh, so I had to stay in New York for her. <laughs> That's the way I like. And just to tell for it. our listeners, Belinda's your wife, so worth it. Yeah, <laughs> was, <laughs> worth it. Yeah, <laughs> of course, still is. Yes, shockingly. Yeah. So I, I worked in New York for Bernard Sumi and Emilio Ambaz. They were doing competitions at the time. There wasn't a lot of, there was a lot, there's always a lot of work. There isn't often a lot of money right. in the field. So it was mm-hmm. one of those times that was the early nineties and there was just nothing. So we eventually started our own shop, you know, partly because we wanted to do something that was our own and there wasn't really any other options at the time. So, and I think, you know, all of those scholarships meant that it was possible. Mm-hmm. You graduate now with, you know, a huge amount of debt. And I think, I think it's, it's, it, it takes a lot more to make a decision like that. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, and it's great advice. We know there's a lot of young budding architects that listen to this. So you never know, do you, when you apply for these things? It's important, I think, to always be pushing, but the breaks come in unexpected ways often and everybody needs a bit of luck. (laughs) And, Jeremy, you've stayed in New York now. You have gone back to teaching and could you just describe a little bit that's been an involvement that we've spoken about previously and I think now you've actually got tenure, is that correct? I do. Yes. Uh, I've had I've had tenure for a number of years now. I guess that the way I see it is that in some ways you have to every day sort of earn the right to have tenure. The idea was of tenure was set up so that you could pursue research that wasn't necessarily popular. And so there was the support of alternate ideas, radical ideas, unsupportable ideas as as pure research. So it feels like you need to be doing something to earn that in a way, right? Mm-hmm. You can't be doing something that one could do, let's say, without that protection. Mm-hmm. So I guess, you know, there there's I have this imperative of experimentation that's very important to us within the practice. You know, I feel if I abandon that, then I'm not worthy anymore of tenure. When you become an architect, you know, I think everybody can relate to this a little bit. When you become an architect, you join a guild. There are many other architects and we share information. And I learned this at Harry Seidler's office. I had the good fortune of starting there when I was a youngster. I was working there when I was going to UTS. And, oh, my goodness, the patience they had with me. I I probably started there maybe when I was 19 or 18 or something. 
I remember Harry would wear a suit every day to work and he had these bow ties, you know, that he would tie and the shirt. He was very, he had a look, he had a thing going on. And he took me into his apartment and he knelt down on the floor of the bathroom to show me how the plumbing worked, how the waste pipe and the vent pipe and you got to make sure you allow the space for this. This pipe goes this way, that pipe. He's in his suit and there's both time we're under the sink and looking up. And uh, I mean, it's sort of clean, but not really, right? It's the, yeah. the un- underneath of the, yeah, just the patience of the guy. I mean. Is it something that you reflect on now that, that maybe did you appreciate it at the time? I just was terrified, right? <laughs> so holy shit, <laughs> I better not screw this this up. I mean, what's he what's he talking about? <laughs> but you know, everybody in the office was like that, and there were so you know you go back. Just show me this. What what was that? <laughs> what was he talking about? What am I meant to do with that? How do I draw that? You know, that kind of helpfulness I think is part of the guild. It's part of the culture in architecture and I was lucky to sort of be exposed to that as I came in to architecture at with those folk at the office at Harry's and you know I think that's that's a patience and a culture that one would like to promote Mm. in one's own practice hard to do on some days (laughs) but yeah I think that's where teaching fits into the practice or our practice we always have students and interns and Uh, graduates and former students always in the mix. And what do you see different or do you see any difference with the current cohort of students studying coming through with architecture? How do you think it's different from when you were studying? I think it's generational. You, You see the different attitudes, the different vibes, you know, from the generations, the youngsters as they come through. I see it a lot at sort of school. Sometimes you'll see the students being quite conservative, quite timid, quite narrow in their interests. And then at other times they can start to be more expansive. The current generation, they're the protest generation. They grew up protesting. My my daughter, she's probably of an age that she's in college and she was protesting at 15. They would get days off school to go protest. So, you know, you get that in the architecture school. You know, you want to kind of promote that. Well, where do we take that? How do we change things, change the way we do it? How do we bring other voices into the mixture? We've had this past uh, semester for this past year, really, we've been focusing a lot on the work of black architects in America and in Africa and South America as a way of sort of participating in the protests of the street. So hopefully those ideas you know, stay in the culture and make it richer, broaden our knowledge of discipline, promote all the voices in the guild, so yeah. to speak. Yeah. And Jeremy, you obviously have a a great passion and and design for the environment in mind. Being in New York, how do you make that happen? I think one of the great spaces of the city is is the street. In New York, even though there's more weather Mm. in New York than Sydney, in a way, you have snow, you have rain, you've got intense heat, you've got insane humidity, you have weather but you also have a very rich social life. The cities, one has a social life on the street in the city. And so I think that the architecture in 
in the city, it performs a social function as well as that kind of environmental function. So I'm always looking to connect with the street in an architectural way. And I think you can see that in our project down in Tribeca that we're finishing. We have these little Juliet balconies that are like the fire escapes in the city where people hang out and look out onto the street and see, participate, if you will, in the life on the street. I think the, you know, the windows and the doors and the apertures onto the street are very deliberate and they're unconventional. On the inside, you have this visual connection to the energy uh, of the street. And then, of course, the, the connecting with the sounds and the smells and the weather of the city. The building is basically five floors of corbeling. And so when the snow hits that, it's just beautiful where you, know, you have the white on every ledge for five floors. I think sort of accentuating what's happening in the weather, making that visible is important. We have these devices to create sort of ventilation that aren't just a window. They're these, these hardwood wedges wrapped in felt and you pull them out and the air comes through, you put them in, you close them up. Right. Um, I mean, one of the reasons, just to put it in context with this particular house, which is it four stories or five, Jeremy? You see five from the street. Yes. Uh, it's uh, seven levels. And one of the things that you explained to me was that it actually faces another really old building, I think, that houses most of Rob De Niro's business enterprises. But one of the things you, you do see when people build these houses is that they build them with all these wonderful big windows so that they can look out. But then they also want their privacy, so most of the time you just see shutters or blinds pulled down. And I think That's that... Right. It's been really beautiful how you've managed to allow the light in and the air, as well as the privacy, the way that these these windows have been constructed and designed. Yeah, in New York, you have exhibitionists <laughs> who sure. enjoy who enjoy the floor to ceiling glass. My clients were not those. Yeah. They were a family that craved their privacy, and we turned the windows up and down the street and created these sort of vertical slices that sort of related to the scale of the architecture in the neighborhood. But they created windows at different, at unusual heights and created these pockets or these moments of a sort of domestic intimacy mm. along that street wall. And I think that's one of the things that identifies the domestic architecture or the domestic scale from offices or commercial institutional work is that the domestic is that place for your private memories, your private moments. It's, it's very personal domestic space. And so we tried to build that into the, the scale of this facade and the space behind it. And so the, the all-important question is the main material in this structure is brick. And how did that come about? Ah, we got to brick, finally. <laughs> well, it, it's like my uh, coming-of-age story. You know, I never liked brick. I, I couldn't understand. I, I couldn't really connect with it. I guess being from Brisbane, you know, the weatherboard and, and the surf shacks. But in New York, you have these landmark neighbourhoods 
where every building, every structure has landmark status or historical status, heritage status. And you have to get permission from the Landmarks Preservation Commission to do anything. So we had this property that could be developed, but unless the Landmark Commission approved of your architecture, or that the word they use is appropriate, that your architecture was appropriate for the neighborhood. So, you know, I guess in some ways, you know, I was fairly cynical. I just took our design and wrapped it in brick, the same brick that was in the neighborhood. But in that process, I had to work. We had to work very closely with brick and understand it and get to know its nuances get to know its personality. And as you do that, of course, you know, with anything, you tend to fall in love with it, right? Mm. So it was really, in some ways, the city forced it on us and we took it. What, what, what I think is stunning is that our building doesn't stand out at all. And yet you look at the drawings and the models and it's like, oh my goodness, this thing is a bit of a monster. And I think one of the things that strikes me in the US is the actual um, individual bricks, they're a lot actually smaller than, than the Australian standard. And, and I think that's really allowed, I've seen inside this project, I don't know whether you remember how much I ran up and, and the texture is beautiful and what you see on the outside is, is replicated on the inside and it just creates this most intimate as atmosphere but also a really beautiful one from a textural perspective. How did you select and, and work with the brick manufacturer? Because I think that's a real story in itself. Yeah, it, it's brick sizes. Brick sizes is interesting. Some of the early Frank Lloyd Wright projects that I saw in brick, they use an even smaller brick mm. or a more horizontal brick, which I came to know wasn't a brick at all. It was pavers. Yes. He, um, he just used pavers for his. But yeah, our standard modular brick is is a smaller size than the australian um standard uh, brick and i was the buildings in tribeca were built as mercantile buildings they were warehouses and storage for all the goods that were coming off the docks which were right next to the buildings and these were big heavy structures so they look ornate or elaborate to us but they were really built as tough, you know, warehouse buildings. And I felt that I really wanted the brick to be a really standard brick, not a bespoke designed brick. So, you know, I was, we, we, we were looking for the, we're looking at the standards. We're looking at the, the, the typical sizes, the, what they call modular. And what I noticed with the older brick was all the colors in the particular brick because it was fired in a in a beehive kiln kind of a kiln with a dome and the idea was that the dome gave you very very even heat but because it was back in the day and there was were originally wood fired and then coal fired there were these slight variations in the temperature that would bring out millions of colors in the clay right in each particular brick you know nowadays it's a tunnel kiln and the heat is so even that you lose that color but there's just you know a more i guess it's a faster manufacturing process but you know we found one of these kilns that was being operated by belden bricks who are a standard large brick manufacturer in the states you know the bricks cost a dollar a piece 
which I was pretty pleased about. I thought that was pretty cheap. We used our skills at sort of digital design to, to produce a sort of a curvy, folding, twisting geometry using just the standard sized brick. And the one thing that the brick manufacturer was able to do for us was to cut that brick, wire cut the brick into four different sizes and deliver that to us, you know, cut. And it was a very, actually very small upcharge to do that. Not even, I think maybe 25 cents a brick. And so with those four or five sizes, we were able to produce that facade. Just talk about it because I have now seen it in all the different stages. But because you had to have insulation as well, how did this practically work with the brick layer? Because my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, is that every brick was actually numbered as to where it would go. How was that with a brick layer? Yeah, it's not, it's not quite how it worked. I think that's, I mean, what we, what we were able to do was build a, a thick wall. I think we're very lucky to do that. You know, we have two wides of brick on the outside and one, one white on the inside. And in between those two, the outside and inside bricks, we have this thick, rigid foam layer, which acted as the template mm. for the bricks. So it, 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 the foam was cut to the geometry of the facade. And so that foam stayed inside the wall as insulation. So unlike the Gary building in Sydney, where you just have the veneer of bricks laid up against a backup wall, tied mm. back to a backup wall, we we're able to have a self-supporting brick system. We had an enormous amount of digital information about where every brick would go. But essentially what we did is we gave the bricklayer a series of guides that they would place against the foam to get the outside line of their brick course. Mm -hmm. And then on the foam, it would tell them which brick to use. So they were really just following the foam that was in front of them. The foam was the full size, like permanent template. And that, that was the secret of the construction of that project is we, we were able to produce full size templates for, for everything that was a difficult shape. So the bricklays, they had the five sizes of brick then is colored. So there's a sort of a color mix that they have to uh, worry about. And then the second inside white of brick was just a common brick. It wasn't the face brick. So they had these piles of bricks and we had drawings that color coded the different sizes. And the, we had somebody who would supply them with the piles that they needed and they would choose. They were great. They did fantastic. You know, they, they, they were willing to engage in a new way of doing things. And it was, it, it went surprisingly quickly. It was the quickest part of the project. How's that? Wow. Yeah. Surprising. How many bricks did you use in the end or were used in the end? You know, I think that's in some newspaper somewhere, but I remember, I, I remember it being 40, 2000 and change 48,000 right. change but you no know, I, I didn't know I had to study for this interview <laughs> so it's an interesting question has it changed your perception of bricks now that this project what impact has it had well I think every project we've designed since this has bricks <laughs> joy <laughs> <laughs> yeah it, it's what, what i guess what i really like about the brick is that our design 
doesn't seem strange. Everybody looks at our design, they're like some wild thing. It's a spaceship. It's, you know, it's like they have all kinds of terms and names for it. To me, it just looks normal, but obviously to others, you know, it it's com has complex geometry, it has twisted surfaces. When you do that in brick, it feels like some, something that's familiar. Mm. It feels, maybe it feels, some people have said medieval, some people have said symphonic, some, but, but it, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't feel like it has to be contemporary. And I like that tactility. I like that connection that Brick gives our projects. You know, I like the, it's a, it's a way to bring the light down so the light is darker, is more, it has highs and lows. It has a much greater dynamic range. So yeah, it's been, it's been fun discovering brick and using it in different projects in different ways. You guys have that fantastic black brick that I'm obsessed with now. It's like black and purple. Mm, you've, you've mentioned, well, I know for a fact that you've moved beyond New York. You're doing some things in Australia? We're trying. <laughs> it's hard. We've got a project in um, Barrel that looks like it's it's going ahead. We were doing we're doing some work in Point Piper that you know doesn't isn't going to happen. But yeah, we keep trying. I, I keep trying to find my way home. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeremy, I appreciate your time this morning. We are going to go into the easy questions now for you. These are oh. the, the rapid fire questions. Reading the news, a newspaper or online? Both, mostly yep. paper. Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pencil, pen, or an e-pen? Sharpie number two. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? Both, but reading is faster. What is important to you, style or substance? Always, in equal amounts. Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or modern? Both. Call or text? Text. Travel back in time or into the future? Into the future. Exterior or interior? Always. <laughs> Video games or board games? Do we have to play? <laughs> Form or function? Neither. Complex or simple with relation to design? Simple complexity. Yeah. So will your son be able to go back or is he just happy here? You know, he wants to come back, but, you know, I don't know what he does here. Um, right, yeah. Yeah, he's missing New York, but New York isn't the place that he left. Yeah, yeah, I was so, going to say, how much has it changed? Well, you know, the year was really brutal. You know, it, it became like a ghost town. Yeah. It's, and it's kind of dangerous. But people have come back. I would say we're probably about 75% okay. um, of what it was. I think there'll be another hit after Labor Day. Uh, right. And then, we'll, and then we'll see. Um, In the sense of hit of what? An another sort of another instalment of activity. Right. Okay. The, I think the, the guy from Morgan Stanley basically ordered everybody back after Labor Day. Right. Um, okay. And so a lot of businesses are following his lead. Right. And we'll see, we'll see where that is. I mean, I'm sure there's going to be hybrid working situations. Yeah. And I think the people who are coming into the city are probably even different 
than the people who left. Yeah, right. It's there's an enormous amount of empty office space. So what that becomes, you know, I don't know if that gets converted into residential or yeah. if offices come back again, who, you know, who knows? I mean, I think that retail is the big question. Yeah. Because, you know, all the stores were closing before all of this happened. Yes. You know, like somebody has to reinvent what retail is about. Yeah. No, I mean, it's really interesting on a lot of feeds. It really feels like, the US has kind of forgotten about it or or doesn't really care about it. And we're still, I think, got less sort of cases when you look at the US or the UK a day, and yet we're it feels like it's almost forgotten at the moment in the States. A lot of it, it's it's you know, I mean, it used to it used to be a public health issue. <laughs> now I think it's a public confidence issue. Yes, and yeah, yeah. With a vaccine, America just decided to be confident. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, a perspective. And, um, you know, New York's done pretty well. Like, we're at 60% vaccinated. Yep. And the numbers are sort of between 500 and 1,000 cases a day. But more importantly, the hospitals are just very chill now. Right, yeah. You know, it's only 60% capacity. Right. So it seems like um, it's it's being sort of handled and have you had any you you obviously had COVID as well have you experienced any other side effects or long-term sort of thing you know it's hard to know when you get old just everything feels bad (laughs) you don't know whether it's COVID or not (laughs) I ride I ride my bike I go on weekend that kind of like what do you call them mammals or something oh yes in lycra yes i'm I'm one of those people but i don't ride in a group i'm very solitary (laughs) Uh, solitary man i'm so very i'm too embarrassed for anyone else to see me so um, i I choose to be on my own but my bike computer tells me that i'm doing great okay but but i feel like shit so i don't know whether that's covid or just age but yeah no i i mean i think that actually the vaccination sort of was a bit of a hit it, it, but nothing serious, just probably all mental. A hit to your health? A little, again. Um, yeah. 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 No, you know, yeah. You felt tired, okay. loss of breath, you know, sort yeah. of about it. So, yeah, I, I worry about the whole, you know, question of the lungs, you know. Yes. So with, with COVID. But as I said, my bike computer tells me I'm doing great. Well, you are. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow rate and review our podcast we are always looking for new ways to think brick if you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about there's a link in our show notes to let us know